and welcome to this Christian Walk Podcast, the show where no topic is too taboo to empower you on your walk with God. I'm your host, Marley B., and it's my privilege to welcome you back to Season 6. TCW fam, I have invited a former NYC police officer to come join the discussion today about police perception in the community. I'm pretty sure you can gather that this is a deep conversation. So let's get into it right now. Uh, we ain't talked in a minute. Yo, please come kick it with me. I got some questions, need answers, so please be vivid with me. This walk is scary. I know that results may vary, but uh, somebody got to do it. Sit down, let's get into it. Oh, hey, brother Ed Smith. Welcome to this Christian Walk podcast. Thank you. So happy to be here. I am so happy that you're happy because I surely am so privileged to have you on the show and to pick your your brain and to have you share your story, your walk with us, right? Uh, but before we get into our conversation, which is an important one and a relevant one, um, I want to give you a chance to introduce yourself to the TCW fam. Okay, uh, well, to start off, let's say um, I'm married 41 years to my wife, Mimi, and we have two adult children, Al Jr. and Tony. I have four grandchildren. I'm retired from the New York City Police Department. I've been retired now, I guess, 21 years. Um, I was working during 9-11. I retired right after 9-11. I just uh, love and enjoy uh, working and serving in the church, uh, serving the community. I enjoy sports and um, and I also am an advocate for uh, mental health. And I uh, volunteer with an organization called NAMI. That's the National Alliance on Mental Wellness. Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, from your perspective right you have had so many avenues like I, I you 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 summed up your life pretty you know pretty um quickly there but it's right. so many facets so many um roles that you have traveled and I can just imagine some of the things that you have witnessed some of the things that you have been able to participate in some some that are some high moments and some probably you could perceive to be some some low moments right but you've overcome them all and used them as this arsenal and this this battery that is charging your your will to serve God's kingdom right yeah. and you know sometimes there's so many people that their experiences pull them away from God. So the fact that you've been able to travel the world, the, the roads that you travel and been through the things that you have experienced and still have this demeanor of just this, you just have this warm heart. You always are ready to offer this um, warm smile. No matter when I see you, it's like, even if you walking through praying, if I stop and wave to you, you would still stop and, and wave and give me that, that warm smile and keep on back to praying. Right. Um, yes. but that's just, it's like your experience fuel your faith. But as a person that was formerly a police officer, I can imagine you, enduring some situations that challenged your faith. Can you say, is is that a fair assessment? Yeah, yeah. Um, but I would say more so than challenge for me, 
situations like that strengthen my faith because as you go through, mm-hmm. you realize how you got through. You know, yes. you realize that at the end of the day, God never left me or forsake me. He was always right there. And in having that foundation from a childhood, you know, being raised as a person who knew to pray, was taught to pray by my mother at an early age, mm-hmm. you know. So that foundation has stayed with me my whole life. Oh, yeah. So you grew up in a in a, a faith-fueled family, pretty much. Yes, yes. Yeah, so how was that? Was that going to church? Was that, um, are you a PK? Or were you guys just um, frequent attendees and you you just have it in your blood? Some people just have it in your blood to be a part of a church and be in it. So what what, what did it look like for you? Well, early on, um, didn't attend church a lot. But like I said, but early my mother taught us as children how to pray. And whenever something was going on, some tragedy in the family or, or something like like I had a brother, older brother who was in Vietnam. And every time my mother got word, he was wounded three separate times. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, every time she got word something was going on with him, she would she would just tell us, pray for your brother, pray for your brother. She would get us on our knees, you know, and have us pray. And so, but church as a child, we went sporadically. We didn't go all the time. Mm-hmm. But Faith was still strong in the house, even though we didn't go to church all the time. Mm-hmm. And um, as a teenager, you know, when I started, I played basketball, I played football. Sports kind of dominated, you know, that time. So I didn't go to church that often during my teen years because of sports took president. And then um, when I got uh, older and left home, went to college and got married, praise God, I married a woman of faith. So right after we got married, she would say, you know, it's Sunday, can you take me to church? You know? So I would take her and drop her off and go home and put the game on and then come back and pick her up. And then eventually I stopped. I said, "Ah, it wasn't that, church wasn't that long. So I started staying, you know, sitting with her through service and being under the word just, you know, it just takes effect. Just being under the word, it takes effect. And the next thing I knew, I was a regular attendee. And then they asked me to teach mm-hmm. um, Sunday school. And I was like, Sunday school? Because they, they didn't have any men in Sunday school at my church in New York. So uh, I said, well, I'll think about it. So Mimi encouraged me to do it. And I, I said, OK, I compromised. I said, I'll be a substitute. Whenever somebody's out, I will substitute. Of course, every Sunday somebody was out. <laughs> right. We need Friday. you, brother Al. We need you. <laughs> yeah. So every Sunday, eventually, I end up being superintendent of the Sunday school, and then I end up being uh, president of men's. I just, you know, God just planted that seed, and just it grew, and you know, and I became totally, totally committed. Wow. And then when you consider your time as a police officer. Right. You were on the force 20 years. Yeah. You were on the force 20 years, NYC, right there on the front lines of 9-11. Um, and taking your foundation of faith as a were you was this during your time in the police or uh in the police force? Were you, you know, 
coming up in the church during this time or were you was this before you know the 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 superintendent having the bible uh study happen was that before that or after this is all during that same time frame so mm -hmm. while while i'm uh, working for the new york city police department i'm growing in the church at the same time mm -hmm. so it's overlapping Mm. And so when you finally decided to leave, right, do, how did you know it was the right time? You mean when I retired? Yeah, when you retired. Okay. Because you retired kind of early. You've been, because you're, you're still a young man now. You're still a little whippersnapper. You're still out here doing it now. So, so well, that, you, you definitely could have did more, yeah. <laughs> more years well, if you wanted to. That, that, I, looking back. I mm -hmm. see it was it was all God's plan, God orchestrated. But at the time, it was just me responding to this, you know, what was in front of me. I was um when I retired, I was actually working a special assignment. I was working undercover. Um how do I say this without telling too much detail? <laughs> I know, right? Oh. <laughs> so I was I was working um I guess the best way to say it is like organized crime with uh, the mm -hmm. crime families, mm -hmm. you know, uh, dealing with the construction business and stuff like that. And so um, I had gotten to, I've been doing it like four years. I was undercover like four years. And I was told that it was going to be like, oh, it'll be a short, like a six month thing, you know, it'll be over. That's what I was told before I agreed to go in. And so four years later, I'm still, you know, living this life, you know, with married with children, and I'm living this like two lives, you know. Mm -hmm. So um, I wanted out, but they they wanted the case to continue, even though I wanted out. And so they said, well, if if we let you out, we can't let you go anywhere. You can't be going out arresting people because somebody might see you, and there was the case is that big and all of this mess, and now you know. So one thing led to another. I said, you know what? I got my time and I'm just gonna retire. So I was I retired aggravated. <laughs> mm, oh, well, aggravated uh retirement. Hey, whatever, mm. whatever happens. <laughs> I feel like God know, like you said, it was a God thing. It, it was one of those, it wouldn't have happened unless God allowed it, right? And so it, it definitely feels like it was just like your time to go to another chapter. Right. right. And we know you, you, and I appreciate and admire the fact that you embrace new chapters, right? You mm -hmm. didn't just sit there and say, oh, well, what am I going to do now? You went on to find other ways to serve, find other ways to, um, to serve not only the kingdom, but the community, because mm -hmm. uh, I, I'm, I'm a firm believer that, you know, it's some jobs that, or careers, however you want to, um, categorize it. It's it's not what you do, it's who you are. And yes. I think a police officer is one of those things, right? Police officers, mm -hmm. people in the medical profession, that got to be in you, no matter whether you can do it because you got the license to do it or the badge to do it or not. That Those characteristics are just a part of who you are. And that I, I can definitely say... Um, I, I think it's definitely befitting from what I know of you, right? right? Now, when you, as a retired police officer, and you've been retired from, for 20 plus years now, right. and so I wonder, what is your 
how do you feel about the perception of the police force nowadays? Well, it, it ebbs and flows. Over my career, there were times when it was higher, and then there's times when it's low. I remember when I first came on the force in the 80s, they were killing cops like, like it was a game show. You know, I was going to funerals like every other week, seemed like, cop wow. funerals. And um, we were hated. We were hated then. You know, we went through that whole crack time. And um, so, and then after that, it kind of mellowed for a while and the police, you know, kind of seemed more acceptable to society. But with, you know, with every, you know, person being shot in the back or somebody, you know, these more recent times to put mm -hmm. foot on the neck and all of that. It brings mm -hmm. back all the negative stereotypes of the police. But what people don't realize is for every wrongful shooting or chokehold, there have been thousands upon thousands of encounters with the public with nothing going wrong, with somebody mm -hmm. getting a ticket and going on their way, with somebody getting a warning going on their way, somebody being handcuffed and taken to jail for the night, for the week. For the rest of their lives, and nothing goes wrong. I made more arrests than I could count, where nothing, nobody ever got killed. Uh -huh. You know, when I was affecting arrests. Now I've been in situations where people died, but I wasn't making an arrest. But, uh -huh. um, but just thousands of encounters where nothing goes wrong. So, do you think the 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 issue is just the the sensationalizing? of the media or you know entering the information age everybody got a phone everybody got a way to report things from their perception do you think that has something to do with it well the reality of it is it's multifaceted there are racist cops there are cops that uh, abuse force you know use too much force those things happen and when it does happen people have to pay the consequences you know but to, you know, we don't hate doctors because one doctor is, is um, drugging women and, and, and sexually abusing them. We say, okay, this doctor was bad. We don't say all doctors are bad. You know, when a teacher is abusing a child, we, we okay, we deal with that teacher. We don't say all teachers are bad. We deal with that teacher. Same thing with clergy. When clergy is out of line, okay, we get rid of him or her. Mm -hmm. We don't say, oh, cut the church off, defund the church, you know. We don't get rid of the church, you know. Mm. So yeah. the police department just needs to be treated like any other entity within society. Deal with the bad. Don't don't sweep it under the rug. Deal with the bad. And then move on. But I know we we kind of wanted to talk about mental health. So so I just want to tie this in my my mm -hmm. uh police career with that. So when I uh, joined the force, we used to use a terminology called uh, EDP, emotionally disturbed person. So we would get a call that somebody was having a mental health crisis, and that was the terminology we used. And we would go there, and you know, try to safeguard the person, and then remove them to the hospital. Okay, so I recall uh, one time in particular. <clears throat> Um, this is when I was on patrol, blue and white. Mm -hmm. uh, me and my partner, we were working a four to twelve, 
and it was at the end of the night. And I think we had a party we were going to go to after after the shift. So you think you get through the shift, you don't want to get an arrest or get something to tie you up if you want to do something after work, right? Right. So we we get this call. I think it was a wellness call, if I remember. Go check on a person at this address. So we go to the address, ring the doorbell, and a young woman answers the door. And she seemed fine. She was a, a white woman, maybe in her mid to late 30s. She very polite. No, I'm fine. I don't know who called. Everything's good. We look look around the house a little bit, you know, just in the area where we were. Everything seemed fine. So we leave and we walking back to, to the police car. We get back to the police car and my partner and I both look at each other. We said, something's not right. We got to go. Now, this is our last call. We know we're not going to get another call, you know, unless right. you know, crazy happens. We know that after this, we're going to our little party, whatever we had planned. I don't remember so long ago. But we go back and I ring the doorbell again. She doesn't answer. I ring it again. She doesn't answer. About the third time I ring the doorbell, she, she answers the door and she's bleeding. She had cut her wrist and she had written in blood on the wall like her little suicide note. So Whoa. got a towel, put it on her wrist. Put her in the police car, rushed her to the hospital, and she was fine. But and that was like one of my early experiences dealing with somebody with a mental health crisis. You know, mm -hmm. she just seemed a little too melancholy, too down. No, I'm fine. You know, we just—I'll say Holy Spirit because I was yeah. a believer then too. Yeah, let me know that something's not right. Go back and check. So. Mm. And yeah, that's a, a great example because, you know, sometimes, um, you know, first of all, health, mental health illnesses have been something that was an issue in society for as far back as, as this country was founded. Right. But, you know, for a long time, it was just, you know, mental illness was something that was taboo. It was something that, you know, people just classified some people as crazy. And it wasn't, and there's so many nuances to that. You know that as a professional, right? You, We know that from seeing so many things play out as they've been pushing the conversation of mental health to the forefront because society is not allowing it to be suppressed any longer. The things that are happening are um, a lot of the time is a direct result of people having strain mentally, right? People are snapping, people are acting out due to uh, generational childhood, all kinds of trauma, right? Trauma is induced by stress then, by just uh, uh, post-traumatic stress and yeah. all kinds of things. And so, because the the conversation has been able to be more of a, uh, a headline, more of something that the, the, the media can no longer avoid the conversation or right. diminish it. Right. So uh, they they kind of say that police are not trained to deal with it. But you clearly said that that's something that is that you know even back then that was a part of you guys's training that you know that emotionally somebody could be classified which means they need to be handled in a different way there's a different procedure for that right do you feel like you know 
there should be an extensive um or you know a more extensive tr uh training as it relates to mental health for police today or do you definitely, think they have definitely. enough no no definitely and and they do have something called CIT training crisis intervention training uh a lot of the departments have it I know Charlotte has it um they have um part of that training is the police officers they it's like a week-long training that they go through where they visit mental health hospitals they talk to uh patients and there's the last day of training there's a panel and all of this is in conjunction with NAMI there's a panel in the last uh day of training that they have uh, professionals on the panel they have people with mental illness on the panel they have family members of those with mental illness so so supportive so I've actually been on the panel and spoken to the yep the police officers being trained you know mm -hmm. sharing my experience as a police officer dealing with it and as a, a family member dealing with it so during that panel people share their experiences um and it, the whole point is to make sure that the police see the person as a person as a family member as a loved one as somebody who's cared about not as a perpetrator using police terminology or a criminal mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So, and so people are told to ask for if there if there is a mental health crisis in your home in your neighborhood that you you're aware of that this person has a mental health issue and they're in an episode to ask for when you call 911, ask for a CIT trained officer. So mm -hmm. somebody's coming who you know has had the training and they know that they're going to a, a, a mental health situation. I know in New York City, they, the policies change with handling, we call them, like I said back then, EDPs, emotionally disturbed people. After a grandmother, her name is Eleanor Bumpers, I remember the name, remember the case. She, the police were called to the house for a, a domestic disturbance. And they go in, and she's wheeling a butcher knife. Mm -hmm. And they shot her and killed her. You know, wow. she's like 70 years old, Black grandmother, you know, in the project. And so it was a big, you know, uproar. She's in her own home and all. So that's when they came up with a policy of isolate and detain. So if the person is acting in a way, if you can isolate them and detain them to that area, the police, we could back out, isolate and contain them and talk them down. You don't have to go in and, you know, have a confrontation where you have to take a life. Mm -hmm. So that's when our whole policy changed. And that was in the early 80s. Mm. Yeah. So, and so go ahead. Yeah, I would just say, so this problem of dealing with emotionally disturbed people in, in uh, extreme uh, situations is not new. It's it's something that's always been, and better training helps. Um, implicit bias is an issue. So you that because uh, so many situations we'll say as people of color, well, if mm -hmm. the person was white, they would have found they would have found a way not to to shoot them or not yeah. to kill them. Yeah, you know, people always say, well, why didn't they shoot them in the leg or shoot them in the foot? And and the reason for that is you're not trained. You have to shoot the way you're trained. You shoot. You're trained to shoot center mass, and mm -hmm. center mass is the biggest object you can see. If all I can see is your head, then I'm aiming center mass of your head. If I'm using deadly force, if I'm mm -hmm. justified to use deadly force, if all I can see is your hand, 
then I'm shooting center mass at your hand. If all I can see is your, your foot, then, but mostly you see the person. And so you aim in center mass, you're aiming at the chest. Mm. And, and you know, I've heard, I've heard that there was a, I'm not sure how true this is or if it was true at one time or, and you know, maybe not so true today, but hopefully you can clear that up for me. I heard that police had a, um, a rule or guideline in place that says they, that shooting people in like the leg and, and the shoulder is like maiming them and they, they can't do that. Is that true? No, no, that's not true. Like I, Have I you heard that before? No, no. You're uh -huh. trained to shoot center mass. Even in the military, they're trained to because you want to hit them, mm -hmm. right? If you if you if you're shooting, you want to hit them because you want to stop them from doing whatever activity that's creating the danger. Mm -hmm. You're trying to stop them from doing whatever they're doing. Mm -hmm. So if if I have your whole body in view and I aim for your leg, I'm more likely to miss. If I aim for your hand, I'm more likely to miss, which means I'm going to hit something that I'm not aiming at, mm -hmm. which could be another person. Right. So you aim for the biggest target because mm -hmm. then you're more likely to hit the target. Mm. Let me ask you this, because um, you you kind of uh, touched on this a little bit, and that gave me a nice little open door. <laughs> but when it comes to being a Black, uh police officer right you hear these you know sayings about you got it uh, it's like you black officers have to it's like you black and black and blue right you gotta you have to choose they're choosing blue over black and a lot of um there's uh sometimes a lot of force or um a lot of um resentment for black officers because of that um i you know i'm just a, a quick personal story right my dad was a um he he, he passed away years ago mm -hmm. but he had a best friend that became a police officer my dad used to be a black panther him and and his best friend became a police officer and it was a rift uh between them for a long time because mm -hmm. he labeled him pretty much a, a traitor in his eyes like mm -hmm. he's working for the enemy but he's working for the man it, right he's working for the man you're working for the enemy you're working for the man how could you do that um is that something that you ever encountered because to me like he chose to serve his community but you know, for some people you're choosing another side. Did you see um a lot of that? Um, in um, when you were on the uh, on the force, yes, you do. Well, back when I was involved, yes, you did. But you know what wins over the day? Honor and integrity. Because mm -hmm. let me tell you, when when they had a problem, guess who they called? They called me. Mm -hmm. I worked in the area where the the precinct was. I'm talking about the officers. Mm -hmm. it was like 99% white, so there was only a few black officers. And of course, the neighborhood was all black and Hispanic and Indian age, you know. So, mm -hmm. and some of the black community, they got to the point once they got to know me. When I was, I used to work study midnight. If they had a problem, they wouldn't call nine one one. They would call a precinct and ask for Officer Smith, and they would mm -hmm. say, "We can't guarantee you what officer you're gonna send." <laughs> they would say, "If you ain't send it, they used to call me Smitty. If you ain't sending Smitty, don't send nobody." <laughs> Smitty, oh, I'm definitely keeping that right here. You know, I'm that's 
So I'm that, keeping that, that right. Was, that was the that was the joke, you know, at the brief. They, the the line of the white cops would, would tease with me. They said, "You a person? You personal police officer? People call you for personal service?" And I would be thinking to myself, "There's a reason for that because mm. they know they're gonna be treated with dignity, honor, and respect, and not discounted and and thrown away." I can tell you another story. Um, there was an uh, elderly white woman that lived in the area, right? Mm-hmm. By, by our patrol. And she had a, she lived alone. She had a nurse that would, she she had, a, I guess, for certain hours, she would have a put her up sitting in front of her window. She liked to sit in the window and just look out the window, you know, mm-hmm. before she, uh, the nurse went off duty. And the nurse would probably go off duty like around eight or nine o'clock, I guess, at night. And so I was working midnights then, and she would call the police every night around two or three o'clock in the morning for us to take, pick her up, and put her to bed. What? Yeah. The, call the police to do that, right? So again, I'm, a, I'm a rookie working on uh, midnights, right? So I get the call. The first time I get the call, I don't know nothing about this, right? So I go, mm-hmm. you get the call as a, a, a person needing assistance. That's how the mm-hmm. call came in. So I get the call, get there, and she's fine. She said, oh, you know, the officers, you know, they'll put me to bed at night, you know. So she's small, tiny woman. So I pick her up, carry her to bed, put her to bed, say goodnight, lock, lock her door, because she leaves her door unlocked, you know, lock her door and leave. So this goes on a few times. <clears throat> I don't always get the call. You know, whoever has that area, because my area of patrol would, would be different on different nights, you know? Mm-hmm. So um, so I sometimes I would hear the call. It got to a point where I would hear the call come over, and whoever got the call a lot of times would say, um, Central, that's what we call the, the radio dispatcher. Central, that's a chronic call. It's, 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 it's not a, a police matter. And and dismiss the call, mm-hmm. but they wouldn't go help her. So when I would hear that, if I wasn't doing anything, I would tell Central, "I'll take the call. Don't worry about it." And I would go put the. Now this was a white woman. Mm-hmm. That the white cops would not. I mean, if you're not busy, we still serving the public. I right. the black the black cop would go put her to bed at night and lock her door. And and, wow. and that's just. That's just one experience of, you know, having a servant's heart and knowing that you took a servant's job and know that's not a police call, but we're there to serve. To serve. Absolutely. Okay, so disclosure. I want to make sure that nobody that is out there that got a crush on a on a uh on an officer is not going to request to be tucked in. Please don't do that. Because that was something that was special and that was in that that was back in the day we're not doing that now so please don't don't pick somebody to tuck you in and try to get a a call uh dispatched if you would please refrain from that but when you think when you think about um and we're talking about you know the level of um mental health training what about mental health support for officers right because i feel like a lot of the 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 situations um that a lot of these officers get themselves in as a result of them not being properly screened 
I feel like the I feel like if, if there should be some kind if you are racist so bad that you would be doing something blatantly that that is I mean like a lot of these people have like a record of doing things to people of color sometimes right and it's like how is that not detected how is this somebody not saying hey let's sit you down and see what your problem is do you think that there's a lapse there in the um in the screening of people you know from the beginning but then throughout their careers too well historically there is you know what you screen for things that are important to you right Mm, yeah. So is protecting the black community and that historically high on the list of priorities? If you're a little racist, but you score <laughs> high on the test and you, you're a good shot and you're physically fit and, and your other moral character seems okay. Yeah. Like you if know. you're a little racist or if you just a homicidal maniac. Well, like, that's different. No, not homicidal maniacs. No, 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 no. That that would trigger killers. No, that would trigger. That would trigger. They would. They would not. That's not sliding through. Mm -hmm. But a, a, a little racist. Yeah, that'll slide. That's probably, not high on the list. You know. Yeah, I get that. If you're a little racist, okay. Yeah, so then that's not high on the list. Yeah, historically, and then, it right. might be higher today. Mm -hmm. You know, but I, I'm going back. You know, when I started in police work, I'm going back to the early days. <laughs> so, and then and it's like, that might be, I mean, the racist test got to be, I mean, it got to be a test that's easy to to cheat on. Like, it's like, okay, do you hate, well, you know, how you screen that and really find out? Is it possible to screen something like that? If, well, if well it with the psychological test, they, they ask you questions. I mean, the test now is like 500 questions, you know, and they ask you a lot of different questions in mm -hmm. different ways, but it's the same question. And they can look at the pattern of how you answer questions mm -hmm. to pick up, you know, psychological things like that. So it's, it's okay. hard to, it's not like, do you hate black people? Oh, no. Yeah. Do you hate Hispanics? No. Do you hate, Puerto you know, it's not like that. It's a lot of subjective questions asking a lot of different ways and then they look at the pattern of how you answer and then they can pick up those biases but it's not a disqualifier like i said it's mm. not high on the list you know mm. and so or it's because basically unconscious bias is not high on the list yeah. is what you're saying right right it's not conscious or unconscious really okay right. so when you think about and we talked about patrolling neighborhoods, right? Like you mm -hmm. said, in that in that precinct you were with, it was like ninety nine percent white. Mm -hmm. Do you feel? How do you feel about people being able to patrol neighborhoods that they don't necessarily interact with unless they're on patrol? Like I heard that, you know, I think it was a committee. Who was that? I think that was Chris Rock. I heard him say like. Um, he he believed, you know, and of course this was a comedy show, but you know he'd get to be in a real order during mm -hmm. his shows, and he brought up a good point to me about um, police probably shouldn't be allowed to patrol neighborhoods that they don't live in. What you think about that? Well, here, there's another side to that that question. If you're patrolling neighborhoods you you do live in. There's more likely nepotism, favoritism, mm. you know, 
Are you going to arrest the guy you 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 know you went to high school with? Are you going to arrest the captain of the football team, the basketball? Are you going to remove him and now he can't play Sunday or, or Saturday or what? Mm-hmm. You know, that is the so true. Flash from the neighborhood. Are, are you going to you know? I didn't so, even think about that aspect. So there's there's a there's a whole nepotism that goes with patrolling your neighborhood. Mm-hmm. You know, people that you like, they get a free pass, and the people that you don't like. They they better not spit on the sidewalk. That is that's true. Okay. Well, what about outreach? Like, well, I feel like if nothing else, police that patrol neighborhoods, whether they live in them or not, it I'd like to see more uh police in our neighborhoods doing something to get to know the community. Do you think that that's is that done and it's just not Publicized, or yeah, do you it, think it, that there that was needs a to be whole, done? There was a whole move in that area in the uh, late '80s, early '90s called community policing. It started in Houston, Texas, where they had community police officers. New York City Incorporated, and you had a, a, an officer who would walk the footpost, and it was his job. They made it part of your job description to get out and meet the people in the community meet the store owners you had to get names you had to document who you spoke to how long even the police cars that patrolled we had one hour where you had to park your car and they called it park walk and talk where you had to park the police car and for that hour you had to walk and talk to the community people in a block where you would park now if an emergency happened of course you had to leave that and go handle a call but the other cars would get the calls in your section while you did your park walking tour. So they've done all of that. They've tried all of that. And um, it helps a little. It helps a little. But what you really have to do is you really have to get people who have a heart for service. If my heart's not in it, I can go through the motions and I ain't helping nobody. I ain't looking out for nobody. You know, and half, half of the cops don't even want to arrest anybody. You think police want to lock people up? They don't want to arrest anybody. Half of them don't want to do anything but collect their check and go home. Uh, it's just a you know, and you hear about so many police officers who go their whole career never pulling their gun, never shooting their gun. You don't hear about that too often. Yeah, and that's what you want to do. You yeah. don't want to. You, if you can go home and you didn't shoot nobody and nobody shot you, that's a good day. That's a good day. Yeah, I'm like I didn't have to shoot nobody. Cue Ice Cube. Because and nobody today, shot me. <laughs> Cue Ice Cube because today was a good day. Yeah, hmm. that's a good day. It's so if you had to, if you were able to incorporate one thing that you think that can help the perception of the of the police force what what would it what would it be i think um that, that's a really uh good question that's a that's a tough question but i i think is just seeing the police in their other roles seeing a police officer as a son mm-hmm. with his mom with his dad seeing a police officer as a brother with his sister or his brother, seeing a police officer as a father with his children, you know, 
seeing the human side. So, because when you have a family member who's a police officer, it's a totally different picture. Mm. When somebody you love and care about is a police officer, it's a totally different picture. I remember when um when I was on the force, like I said, early on, cops was getting shot left and right. And so my mother was a nervous wreck all the time. Every time she hear on the news, a cop was shot. And this, so I told my mother, which was not true, but I told her, when you hear it on the news, the family's already been notified. So mm. you would have been notified if it was me. That wasn't true. But that was the only way I could put her mind at ease. Yeah. So that when she heard it, she, oh, it's it's not Al because he said I would have been notified already. Did she ever find out the truth? No. Oh, this I never told her that. <laughs> no, she <laughs> she passed believing that. Mm -hmm. If it wasn't me, she would have been notified hearing it on the news, you know. Mm. Well. But that I, it made it made her be able to sleep at night. Yeah, I mean, because what I mean, that is a nerve-wracking thing because it it and you know, usually being a police officer could not be pretty much really compared to being a soldier, but now it can. Yeah. Because there's like this, it's it's like this this war that's happening. Yeah. Do you feel so, like it's is, is that it, the it, case? It's ebbs and flows. It's ebbs mm -hmm. and flows. There's times when it's pretty routine being a police officer, and then there's times when it's hunting season. Like, yeah, I remember yeah. a few years ago. I mean, since since I've been retired, or a few years ago, I would say about four or five years ago, before the pandemic, right before the pandemic. It was open season on the police. They were shooting them left and right all around the country. And then it it died down again. Hmm. Remember and the shooting in Texas, the guy with the assault rifle in Texas? Yeah. Shooting, I remember that. Just shooting cops. And it's like just having on the uniform makes you a it's target. Enough. It makes it's you enough. a target. And that's something that it changes a person. You know, you could you have to you can't just turn turn you know turn that off, can you? Like you feel like did you just feel like you were a target at any point? Never. I was always able to when I got off duty, I turned the job off. <laughs> I'm off, I'm done. Yeah, well that's good. Cause a lot of people can't do that working in the office. Yeah. And for you, you know, but that just shows once again your character you know shining through there you know because some people you, you know they just can't they can't escape it but that that just shows that you know we need to take advantage of the things that are the resources available right. to um help ease those kind of uh those kind of resentful feelings those fearful feelings right and do you think that there's a lot of resources out there for police that they don't take advantage of well, or do you I'll think say, they need more resources? Okay, historically, it was taboo to say anything. Okay, mm -hmm. I was uh, working in um, anti-crime at this point, so that's plain clothes, doing patrol, and mm -hmm. a mark car. And one of my anti-crime sergeants, he somebody had just recently committed suicide. A cop had recently committed suicide, and so we come into the office. And there's about maybe five or six of us in the office, right? And we're talking about this recent cop suicide. And everybody's, well, you know, I really don't see how you could do that, you know. And this, and the sergeant says, 
I don't see what you guys don't understand. It's very simple. You take the gun, and he took his gun, you put it to your head, and he put his gun to his head, and he said, and you say bang. And everybody's looking at him like, whoa, did he just do that? You know? Yeah. But we didn't take it serious. We said he just was being an ex expletive, okay? Yeah. And we 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 <laughs> we dismissed it. Okay. There was one girl in the unit at the time. Her name was Sue. Um, and she was real good friends with uh, another female who was a lieutenant who was very connected in the department. Mm -hmm. They were good friends. So evidently, Sue mentioned it to her lieutenant friend mm -hmm. who reported it. Come to find out, the sergeant, he hadn't been in that precinct that long. He, he had been there maybe maybe two years at the time. And um, he had been involved in the shooting in the precinct where he came from. And because of that shooting he was involved in, he had gotten depressed. And so he had a mental health history with being depressed about a, a previous shooting. So mm -hmm. when he did that and they reported, they flagged it. And they came in, they took his guns, and they put him on modified assignment. So he was so mad, like, who could have done Who could have reported it? When everybody thought about it, they thought about the one person who wasn't, quote, unquote, one of the guys, one of the boys right. who was there when he did it was Sue and her relationship with the lieutenant that worked at Midnight's. And they figured out that that's, that's kind of how it went. She told the lieutenant, and the lieutenant reported it. And it flagged him because he had this history. So he he was set down, I want to say, a year, maybe two. Because I got transferred to narcotics before he got back on patrol. But he was sitting behind the desk just on destiny for like a year or maybe longer. So when you do modified assignment, do they make you get some kind of mental health treatment? Oh, yeah. He was getting counseling and all of that. He was doing all of that. Mm -hmm. But you know, he was saying there was nothing wrong. He was just, you know, just being flippant. But because of, he had that history and every, it was documented, they took it very seriously. You know? Yeah. So you're, you're saying that because resources are there, but people have to take advantages of it. Take advantage well, here's of the it. Other, but, but when you feel like you're being penalized for saying something, then are you going to say anything? It's going to stunt mm -hmm. my career. Now I'm not going to get promoted. Now I can't, you know, do all the things. I can't be in the special unit now. Now he's on, he's back in uniform, sitting behind a desk. When before he was the sergeant of a plainclothes unit and unmarked cars and the freedom to go and come like we wanted to and work and move. That that's mm -hmm. he lost all of that. Wow. With no and and basically now you you have that stigma on you. Right. Now, everybody in the new precinct thinks, oh, he's a whack job, you know, what it, the terms that they use, you know. I mean, I got so many stories. I had a guy that I, I, we played on the police department basketball team. We had a basketball team, right? And we used to play uh, games against college teams, against, uh, we would do benefits, tournaments, or we, we had the police Olympics, the national police Olympics, and we would, you know, I've been to Canada and all over the place playing basketball for the police department, you know? So one of the guys who was on the team with me, he committed suicide. 
Mm. And at the time that he committed suicide, Dinkins was the mayor, right? David Dinkins was the mayor, mm -hmm. first black mayor of New York City. Mm -hmm. And his job was to drive Dinkins' wife. He was Dinkins' wife's personal, you know, driver and like bodyguard. That was his, right. so he had the, like one of the sweetest jobs you could have on the department, right? But he he was depressed and he had some issues in his personal life and maybe some ghosts and things that had happened in the past. That one day he went home and he shot himself. So I mean, it's. It's so it's many things. Thing. Yeah, it's real. It, 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 I got, it's, like I said, I got so many stories of guys. I'm that sure. I I'm sure, Al. Like, and then so one and committed suicide, and yeah. And when you when we think about the people in our lives, right? Whether we're a part of the police force, when we as we're just dealing with our own family members, right? A part of uh, your um, your job uh, with 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 know me. Right. Is um, it, yeah, with no with Nami is, you know, you help to help you help people to identify right. the signs when it right. comes to mental health. And I right. think right. so right. many of us dismiss the signs, right? Well, here's, here's an easy one. Okay. Teenage years, mm -hmm. right? Teenage years. Teenagers are moody, they they get quiet, they spend a lot of time in their room, they isolate, you know. Because they're moody. Mm -hmm. So how do you know when they're, they're just going through normal teenage changes or there's actually something else going on? You have to actually sit down with your kids and have conversations so that you can find out. Are they saying anything that clues you in that this is not a normal moodiness? There's something more going on. Mm -hmm. Are they seeing things or are they hearing things that are not that everybody else is not seeing and hearing? And you only find that out by having actual conversations, actually listening to what they're saying and not being in the mindset of just I'm parenting them and you know, disciplining, you know, or ignoring them. They're just a pain and not, you know, they're they're in their room good. Yeah, right. And we generalize, oh, that's just a teenage. He's just being a teenager. Right. She's being, so just you, being a teenager. So you have to be intentional about paying attention for the clues that there's something else going on. And, it, and it's so important. The earlier you catch things, generally, the better the outcomes. Mm -hmm. you know? So it's very important. And um, while we're on that note, um, it's very important to support the families going through because if if somebody has cancer, right? You know, oh, so-and-so's got cancer. Oh, or so somebody's got a kidney problem. Oh, they got a kidney problem. Somebody was in a bad car accident. Oh, they in a bad car accident. We all, we take food over there. Oh, how they doing? We come. Nobody rings your doorbell and brings you a meal because your son has mental illness. And he's in the hospital. Wow. Nobody, or, or your husband or your wife, you know, because they're in a nobody assists, help, you know. Oh, go to the hospital, spend time with your with your uh, husband. We'll we'll stay with the kid. Nobody does that. Everybody stays away. <laughs> it's not an illness of support, generally speaking. A lot of times you can't even get support from the family. Oh, there's nothing wrong with that boy. It's the parents. They, 
they blame the parents. Oh, that boy is fine. What's, why they, you know, acting like something's wrong with him? So it is really, um, people really have to be educated. And, and NAMI is one of the places where you can get trained how to take care of yourself, how to get support, how to support each other, because there are support groups where family members can come together. And it's a place of no shame because now you can share what you're going through with somebody else going through the same thing. Yeah, if somebody wanted to reach out to Nomi, how can they do it? You can just uh they're online. If they have them in every state. And what's There's the website? Film. Yep. What's, what's the website? NamiCharlotte.org. Yep. Yeah, I wanted to be able to tell the people so they they'll yeah. <laughs> no. We started, my wife and I started a new ministry at uh, the church called Breaking Barriers, okay? Mm -hmm. It's at uh, New Beginners Church, Breaking Barriers, and we are attempting to bring the people who are dealing with mental health challenges together because they get isolated too. Yeah. They don't have friends. They sit home. They don't do anything. So we have events. We bring them out, get them into the community, and have a good time. So we're targeting 18 to 40 young people, just like the uh, Unplugged Ministry group, that age, yeah. group, that same demographic. Yeah. And we just want and support the family. The family can come. We have events and we just go out. We have a good time. We interact and we integrate them into the community. We go to football games. We go to jazz concert. You know, we just do a lot of different things. Just get them out in the community and not be isolated, especially since the pandemic. So many people are isolated, even people yes. not with uh, mental health challenges. So yes. imagine the ones with mental health challenges, how they are being isolated. Absolutely. And then people can learn more about the breaking barriers on the church website? Yes. Okay. So that's um, NBCMinistries.org? NBC yes. So please reach out. Don't do not allow the stigma of getting help for mental illness. Stop anyone from reaching out out there. Al, thank you so much for coming on the show today. This has been very enlightening. Um, thank you for your ministry. Thank you for your service. Thank, thank you. you so much for your whole life and for sharing your Christian walk with us. No problem. It's been a pleasure being here and you talk about my smile. You have a beautiful smile. And you you always brighten up the church when you're walking around doing your thing, serving like you serve. Thank you so much. I appreciate that. I'm going to have to get you back on here one day, too, to talk okay. more about your program. All right. Sounds good. All right. That's what's up. Three, two. Thank you so much to my guest, Brother Al, for joining the conversation and sharing your experience as well as your perception as a former police officer about the perceptions going on today. I mean, truly, we got a perspective that we rarely get from someone who actually had the uniform on and understand the mindset of someone in those situations. Really appreciate that. And if this conversation spoke to you, please like it, share it, comment. Don't forget to subscribe to my YouTube channel. Remember, you can stream the show on Apple Podcasts as well as iHeartRadio. And don't forget to check out our new website, thischristianwalk.com. 
Well, TCW fam, what I don't want this conversation to be perceived at is a way to negate the fact that a lot of people with badges and authority should not have them. Right. The, the fact remains that so many people have lost their freedom and their lives behind crooked police. But what I don't want to perpetuate is what social media and, you know, mainstream media want us to think that all police are bad. That's just not true, because the fact remains that there are many men and women that suit up every day in those uniforms with the intent to protect and serve. And they also hope to get home safely to their families. And so I'm hoping that this conversation and this perspective will help you to consider that these people are not just authority figures. They're not just cops. They're not just people out here trying to hold us down. They are people's mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers and daughters and sons. And we should not allow offense to stop us from wanting the best for them, for praying for them, because they need prayer just like us. And on this walk with God, I know one thing for sure. Loving God can be easy. Trusting God can be hard. But I believe we can all get there one step at a time on this Christian walk. I'll see you next time. Uh. We ain't talked in a minute, yo, please come kick it with me. I got some questions, need answers, so please be vivid with me. This walk is scary, I know that results may vary, but uh, somebody gotta do it. Sit down, let's get into it.